And we begin with good day, sir. <laughs> Geeks come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and that they come into all kinds of things. That I'm <laughs> uh, I was thinking more about the satanic panic. By the scholar Gary Gygax. Well, wait, hold on. I said good day, sir. Not defending Roman slavery by any no, stretch, but... but oh, God, that's bad. Let them vote. Fuck off. <laughs> when historians, and especially British historians, yeah. want to get cute. Oh, it's, it's in there. Uh, okay. it, it is not worth the journey. This is a geek history of time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I am a world history teacher uh, at the seventh grade level. I'm also the father of a geekling in training. Uh, he's uh, just getting to the point where he's about to learn how to walk, and I've already got a sword in his hand. <laughs> it's wooden, and he mostly likes to chew on it, but I consider it a start. Uh, How about you? Well, uh, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin teacher. Uh, I used to be a social science teacher. Uh, I am also a father of two. Uh, if you look behind you, Ed, you will see a bunch of the minis that my daughter has oh, painted. Dude. Okay, hold on. Yeah. I'm step away from the table. Oh, feel free. Keep talking. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and she uh-huh. said it's okay if we strip down the owlbear and the unicorn, by the way. Because okay. she wouldn't mind taking a second chance at them now that okay. she kind of has an idea of what she wants to do. Okay. So we primed them, but she primed the unicorn with all black, and I was like, hey, you should have primed that with white if you're going to make it white. So, But I am the father of two geeks. She loves to play D&D. They have decided to switch characters. They're both playing magic users, so the NPC is now a paladin who is a soldier, so I'm actually teaching them tactics, uh, which is is fun. Um, And yeah, I am not teaching children to wield swords or anything like that. But we do have a fake sword and a fake axe hanging over on the wall in case yeah. they ever get a critical hit. There you go. So brilliant. Yeah. All right. How long you been a geek, dude? Oh, geez. Um, six feet. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, uh, sir. I say good day. <laughs> we have a tradition uh, that y'all don't know about, but I am also a stand-up comic, and I run a pun they tournament. Never would have guessed. <laughs> I'm not that funny. Um, but I run a pun tournament with a, a colleague of mine. And we've been doing it for two and a half years. It's Capital Punishment. Uh, and I will just throw puns out there sometimes. And what I'll often do is have a long, sweeping story. There will be a huge shaggy dog. This just these amazing, Enormous. incredibly... Incredibly artful, like like well so many working parts in them. Shaggy dog stories that'll end with the shittiest puns, just awful. just the most painful, horrible, terrible puns. puns. And he puts these things up on social media, and I gener- and, and I usually <laughs> respond in all caps as though I am a character in an Austin novel. <laughs> Sir, I say good day. Yeah. And always with an angry react because oh, because Jesus they hurt. Oh, it's fun. So so I'll I'll, I'll give an example actually just for kicks. Um, so ah so uh, embarrassing confession. As many of you know, I love professional wrestling. If you listen to previous episodes, in an effort to pull myself away from the crushing and depressing mm-hmm. news uh, that is the news lately, I treated myself to some Indian food. I went to a local bookstore to see my favorite professional wrestler of all time. Bret Hart, he is on a signing tour currently, and I promised myself that I'd avail myself of the opportunity if it ever presented itself, because 
Back in 2000, he was on a signing tour, came through Detroit, and I happened to be in Michigan for my grandfather's funeral at the time, oh, wow. and I didn't go to it. Ugh. Yes. So I promised myself if it ever happened again, I would do this. Uh, and you can look behind you. You see my Bret Hart uh, bobblehead. Yeah. Um, however, the Indian food restaurant screwed up their order and kept me way later than I'd anticipated, so I had to bring all the food with me. Now, it's not really a problem. I figure I could use the bowl of Indian soup as an icebreaker since he had been to India in his career. He was big in India. And it was an outdoor signing, so I figured the overwhelming smell wouldn't bother anyone. Now, this is two paragraphs into a social media post. Yeah. It's a yeah. very real-sounding story. Is, this, yeah. While I was in line, almost right in front of me, uh, and almost right in front of him, I'd absently rested my food on the table near him, and it wasn't quite right in front of him, though. And a kid asked me a question, and unbeknownst to me, this kid had a friend who had brought a pet frog to introduce to Bret Hart. And the kid was probably more interested in the frog, and his dad had dragged him along for the signing. The damn frog jumped out into my soup and splashed around while I, my, while I had my back turned, and while the line was moving. And by the time I was aware, the frog was soaked in my soup and jumping right into Bret Hart's face. So unfortunately, I didn't get to meet Bret Hart that night because as I turned around wide-eyed, it was a toad doll eclipse of Bret Hart. Which reliably, an hour later, I will get an angry emoji from from my partner here. Uh, and Sir, to <laughs> whom should I direct my second? It is so good. <laughs> I have so many people who are just like, I just skipped to the bottom. I know better now. Yeah. 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 No, you know, when, when you first started talking about Indian food, I thought it was yeah. going to be the cure was worse than the disease one. That's also a fun which, one. Which hurts. Yes. Which yes. so bad. Oh, it's so good. So, so, that's... so now, <laughs> oh my God. So um, now, now that we've explained that, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. Um, what do you think of giant robots? Like in science fiction, in, in as a subgenre, as a characteristic, as a, as a MacGuffin? Sure. What do you think? Um, honestly, yeah, I was always more into human and human-like creatures for my okay. cartoons than I was giant robots. Okay, Transformers was okay. Okay, but I never dug on the style of anime okay. that was Robotech and Macross Voltron. Plus and Voltron. Okay. Um, Transformers. Yeah, it was not okay. not it's a not, huge fan. I still not, dug them because they yeah. were on after GI Joe, but yeah. they were not my favorites. I I okay. had trouble connecting to them, quite honestly. Okay. Um. So giant robots, not not a thing I've been that interested in, but okay, I am interested in the history of toys. Okay. So. Um. And and on on another occasion, uh huh. I can I can. Do the research. We can talk about the the toys angle of okay. all of that because it is it is a big deal. It is mm -hmm. definitely a big part of it. But um, I am you're a huge a robots, huge fan. giant robots fan. Mm -hmm. uh, we already did an episode, two episodes mm -hmm. on BattleTech, which right. is Yankeefied giant robots. Right. Um, and if you throw a giant robot series at me. Mm -hmm. If I look at it and I say, oh my God, this is going to be a total sack of crap, mm -hmm. I'm still going to watch the first two or three episodes because you giant never robots. know. And, sure. and it's giant robots. And like, if somebody explained <laughs> to me um, the the premise of Tengen Tapa Gurren Lagann before I ever saw the series, I would go, that's absolutely ridiculous. That's way too far over the top. That's <laughs> stupid. <laughs> 
But then you watch the show, mm-hmm. and it has this odd Japanese way of being so totally committed that it's awesome. Okay. It, it manages it manages to cross the line twice and be all that. Okay. Like it's it's amazing. Stupid. Still. Right. Like the whole time you're watching it, you're like, oh yeah, no, this like there's not even suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. but I don't care because <laughs> you know. Okay. Um and then if you give me another series like Gundam or Fang of the Sun Fang of the Sun Dogram mm-hmm. or uh, uh, Macross, which Robotech is derived from. Right. Um, I'm an unabashed squealing fanboy. Wow. Okay. What is um, it about me? I keep attracting these kinds of friends to me. I don't All know. of my friends have always been like really into these things. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's maybe because all my friends are older than me. It could be. Yeah. It could be a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and in my case, I know that my exposure to the genre mm-hmm. happened when I was in you know later elementary school living, okay. living in Hawaii that'll do it we've already talked about me being right. exposed to samurai movies at an age that warped my character forever. sure um, and so this genre was was something that was this huge impactful thing on, on my whole outlook on science fiction mm-hmm. um, you know some of my more uh, literary friends might think to the detriment of, of my, you know, the stuff that I've tried to write and tried to do, but um, I, 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 I don't even consider it a guilty pleasure. I'm just like, no, no, man, I love this. I will fight. You. It's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And um, so the, the interesting thing is, it wasn't until I was in late high school, okay, where it was pointed out in an article I was reading mm-hmm. that was above my pay grade it was above sure. my reading level at the time but I, and i don't even remember where it was but it was a it was a semi-scholarly bit mm-hmm. article uh on japanese media in general and they specifically talked about the link between the giant robot genre and the depiction of giant robots and the link to uh nagasaki and hiroshima okay and so when we started talking about doing this podcast, right. this was something that I immediately went, well, you know, as a history geek, I yeah. really, this is something I really want to I remember this to. being one of the first topics you brought up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, might have been, I think it was number two. Might yeah. not have been number one, but I'm pretty sure it was number two or number three. So, I, I brought up poop. Yeah, well, yeah. That was number two. Because, yeah. Oh, right. I mean, the one I brought up. Oh. Second one I brought up. Oh, but oh. yeah, you you did. I brought up, bring up yeah, and, and as number really, two on the list. I really, yeah, yeah, I really would have preferred it if you hadn't, you know, flung it at, at the same time. But so to to understand the history mm-hmm. of all of that, um, I want to take you back to 1945. Okay, but pre pre bomb of pre bomb. Sure, 1945 Operation Downfall. So the plan to invade. Yes. Okay. Now, it was the Allied plan for the invasion of the Japanese home islands. Right. It was scheduled to start in November of 45 with the invasion of Kyushu. That's now, the... how much do you know about the geography of the Japanese islands? Well, I had a seventh grade teacher that taught us about Japan. So okay. if I recall, that is the southernmost island? It is the southernmost island. Okay. There are four of them. 
Right. Kyushu is the one farthest to the south. Mm-hmm. The main one nearly everybody lives on is Honshu. Honshu. That is considered right. like mainland Japan to the right. extent an island nation can have a mainland. And there's also Hokkaido? There's the, Hokkaido is the northernmost one. Okay. And then there's... Uh, and then Shikoku that's is the a... smallest of them that's mm-hmm. tucked up under Honshu. Right. Uh, my college uh, Japanese history professor said, if you ever just need a shorthand way of thinking about where the islands are in your head, imagine a baby buggy. Okay. Because the curve and the way right. the shoe and, and they look uh, like wheels. Shikoku are down at the bottom. Okay. Um, so the plan was uh, Okinawa had been invaded. Right. And Okinawa is not really one of the home islands, but it is. It's kind. Depending on who you're talking to and what they're talking about, right? Uh, Okinawa sometimes is considered one of the home islands, but it's not a main home island of Japan. But strategically, and it was vital it was, to it an was invasion. Critical to yeah. an invasion because of trying to get air support, trying to get supplies, trying to find a staging area. All that and kind of that stuff. Niwo Jima, if I recall correctly, like so demoralized our troops in, in some ways in, oh, in the victory. Well, yeah, because because it, it was, was like it was grueling. Oh God, the invasion's going to be yes. terrible. And we're going to get to that in okay. a second. Sorry. So, well, no. Yeah. Uh, after taking Kyushu, so the the invasion was going to start on Kyushu. Okay. And the idea was take the southernmost island mm-hmm. and use the airstrips the Japanese already had right. in order to provide air support, supply drops, all that kind of sure. stuff. Um, and they would invade directly onto the Kanto Plain. Now, the Kanto Plain, Japan is a highly mountainous country. Right. Um, something like, I want to say it's only 20% of the land mass. I haven't gotten to this unit yet this year, so it's been a year since mm-hmm. I talked about the geography. But uh, something like 20% of the land mass, and it might be less, it might mm-hmm. be more like 10, is flat. Wow. The other 80, 90% is mountainous terrain. Okay. So the Kanto Plain is the largest concentrated area mm-hmm. of relatively flat terrain in the home islands. It's where Tokyo is located. Right. Now, um, knowing my Roman history, if you've got a shit ton of mountains, yes. you are hard to invade. You're, yes. You're you, you, it's not worth the trouble. Yeah, no, it's really yeah. difficult. Yeah. So um, this would have, so the, the idea was they were going to invade the Kanto Plain. Oh. Uh-huh. Kanto Plain, sorry, on Honshu, utilizing air support mm-hmm. uh, coming from Kyushu. Mm-hmm. And this would have been, the largest amphibious invasion in history. Right. Uh, MacArthur's invasion of Korea, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years later, however long it was, mm-hmm. five, five, six years later, uh, was big, but it was a piker compared to what this plan would have been. The number sure. of men involved, the amount of material. Now, just, just for comparison, because a lot yeah. of people would know D-Day. Yeah. Right? And I remember, because I took a history of World War II class yeah. when I was in college. I remember that one of the things that they planned for was literally, and I'm not exaggerating with this number, one million body bags were requisitioned for that invasion for Japan. For Japan, yes. D-Day, it was not even a quarter of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was. It was. And that's not the, even, It was not even two hundred thousand. That's planning for the dead. Yeah. Never mind the amount of not, people. Not. Not. not ne- Just never planning mind, for never the mind, dead. Never mind the wounded. Right. No. Yeah, that was KIA right. figures were expected to be over a million. So yeah. when you've got D-Day, which is the largest uh, amphibious invasion yeah. in history, um, six beaches, et cetera, et yeah. cetera, this is literally more than four times that big. Yes, this yes. this would have been... And concentrated an on one spot. Yeah, this, this would have been an exercise in concentration of force. Yes. 
uh, in in college and ROTC. There and are attrition. basic yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. There are there are basic principles when you're making any kind of an attack plan. There are basic principles that you need to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. One of them is concentration of force. Okay. Uh, Sherman would have said, "Be there firstest with the mostest." Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, throwing all the force you can at you know figuring out what the most important point is hitting it with all the force you can spare right. to hit that point. You know. Yeah. Rather than, you know, having a whole bunch of stuff going on a bunch of different places. That's why spears have tips. Yes, precisely. Yeah. And that's the reason we use that analogy, tip right. and spear. So, um, the, the Japanese looked at the map of their own country. They knew. And they knew. They were yeah. like, okay, look, they're, <laughs> they're going to be invading right. because we're, we're refusing to surrender because the sanctity of the emperor is inviolate. We cannot give that up. Right. And they're demanding an unconditional surrender. Which, Can't do that. Which, which, by the way, was unprecedented in world history up to that point. True. And they're like, it, unconditional means they might take away the emperor. We cannot do that. Right. Um, and so we know they're going to invade. And so we know this is how they're going to do it. It's the only so, way. So the Japanese knew we were coming. We knew the Japanese knew we were coming. Mm-hmm. And what we didn't know, or what our generals didn't know, was that the Japanese plan was we're going to defend Kyushu until we are bled white. Mm-hmm. The defense of Kyushu, we're throwing everything at it. There will be right. no reserves. There will be nothing held back. Right. We're, you know, kamikaze tactics until doomsday. Right. You know, we, women, children, everything. Everybody. Yeah. And the Japanese people were given a steady diet mm-hmm. of of propaganda right indicating that when yankee soldiers showed up they were going to be eating babies raping everybody that wasn't nailed down right nailing down <clears throat> everybody they didn't want to rape raped. you yeah. know yeah. just i mean i mean really they were characterizing what was going to happen to civilians sure as being a vision out of hell now it should be noted that they got some of their ideas about how bad it would be from the way Japanese soldiers had treated the Chinese and Koreans. Yeah, I was going to say it's accusation through, or it's confession through accusation. Confession through accusation, yes. Um, And... But to them, that's what war was. They did not belong to the Geneva Convention. No. They had a different way of carrying out war. And they had a different military culture their yeah. their military culture was an outgrowth of samurai ethos was an outgrowth like taken straight out of feudal warfare into right. the modern world in which peasants were property right you know and we did that and, too and, in, well, we, in fairness like in, in the western world the occidental world did yeah, that too yeah but in but the officer the, corps being gentlemen etc yeah, etc well, et yes yeah yes however yeah our our military, mm-hmm. we we have from the foundation of our country mm-hmm. held up this ideal of the citizen soldier, right? And that idea was a foreign <coughs> concept, yes, to the Japanese. The, yes. the common soldier was a dog mm-hmm. uh, whose only job was to follow orders and die for the emperor. Wow! And that was and that was the way. I mean, that was I mean that was the way they were. That's how I you mean, they, they were treated. By their officers, almost as badly as they treated civilians in the field. I mean, the the, the level of punishment that was used by Japanese uh, NCOs and officers was mm-hmm. to us absolutely inhumane. Which <clears throat> goes back to, I mean, it doesn't go back to Rome, but I mean, uh, uh, interesting analog would be how Crassus mm-hmm. decimated his troops after the first fight with Spartacus. Yeah, literally. Oh, you drew the white stone. 
all of your cohort mates have to beat you to death. Have to. Have to. And they're your friends. And they have to. And now go back out there and do it again. Because I'm punishing all of you. Right. You're you're the sacrifice that acts as the punishment for them. And more importantly, you will be more afraid of me than you will of your enemy this time. Yes. So don't fail. So don't don't break ranks. Right. So um, because of all of these aspects, and mm-hmm. you know, we we didn't know that they were going to defend Kyushu that heavily, mm-hmm. uh, but we knew we knew it would depending- drag on until forty seven or so. Oh yeah, too. At, at least, and and we knew that um, the civilian population was going to rise up with bamboo sticks with you know pointy bits on the end of them uh-huh. and whatever else they could get their hands on. Uh, that's what we expected. Or what our generals expected, and so again, casualty rates of yeah. our soldiers rising as high as a million. So hold on to that. Okay. Okay. It goes a little bit further back. Okay. Okay. Japan, like Germany, was subjected to massive strategic bombing attacks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, both to hit industrial targets, to damage the Japanese war infrastructure. And to destroy civilian homes and infrastructure as part of a total war doctrine. Right. Okay. Uh, if you if you terrorize the civilians enough, they'll rise up against they'll, their government yeah, and make it stop. Yeah, except they're Confucian, and that's never going to goddamn happen. Well, and it's Japanese. And you don't understand the culture. But sorry. And on top of that, I'm sorry. Terrorizing a civilian population has never led to shortening a war. No. That I can know of, all the way back to Troy. Indeed. So. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so firebombing. <coughs> yes, was used in Germany, but it was used much more extensively yes. as a tactic in Japan yeah. because uh, Japanese <laughs> homes were literally built out of paper. Yeah, and incendiary attacks caused massive devastation and massive psychological damage because mm-hmm. going back to their feudal age and before mm-hmm. fire because of what they built their houses out right. of in any kind of city fire was the biggest thing people were afraid oh of. yeah um tokyo got what a hundred thousand dead in one night or something um, like that well i'm getting to oh it. i'm sorry not to worry owing to the geography that mm-hmm. i'm talking about you got lots and lots of mountainous terrain right not a lot of flat land you have really high population density mm-hmm. and some sections of tokyo house people at up to a hundred thousand people per square mile just think um, about um think about that density for a second hundred thousand people per square mile that's insane. It's that's nuts. Like it's, to us, it's it's it's. I'm thinking nothing. how far a mile is from my house. Yeah. And in a square. Right. That that hundred thousand yes. no. people per square mile. Wow. All living in traditional wood <clears throat> and paper structures. Wow. Okay. The residential, okay. you know, they, yeah. they that's what they were still living in. The incendiary attacks from February to August 1945 mm-hmm. killed killed over two hundred thousand people. Wow. And left 15 million mm-hmm. of Japan's 72 million people homeless. 15 out of 72 is A little bit insane. less than 25%. Wow. Okay. Here in the U.S., <coughs> we might learn about the firebombing of Tokyo specifically mm-hmm. in school. Mm-hmm. But this campaign hit all of Japan's major cities. Mm-hmm. And notable amongst them for our story mm-hmm. is Kobe. Now, I want to go back just a second. Okay. America had many plans to burn the hell out of Japanese cities, one of which was bats. Yes. They trained bats to roost 
Yes. And then they'd have these timers that would go off and it would and then, spark yeah, fire and yeah. boom. And batshit crazy plan. Yeah. Uh, it didn't work because no. the bats didn't learn to roost the right way and, yeah, and what and have you. Yeah. A lot of people don't know this. They also had another plan and it was they were trying and the it didn't work because it didn't get out of the testing phase. You couldn't get the test to work right because it skewed all the data and also it was hard to... Like they they started to realize oh it's hard to infiltrate but they were basically trying to send in pairs of um, redheads to have sex with each other nice and nice. that because you had to you had to yeah. go there yeah well because well, redheads don't find each other yeah, attractive no, because of because of all that sexual dynamism yeah so uh, that's why there are uh, crop circles for instance oh, oh. Um, Chernobyl was actually really? uh, yeah really? a bunch of expats living in okay. in Kiev and okay. they had an orgy and oh, really? now that's okay. what and yeah that's, and that's what that is yeah. That's, okay. Stonehenge used to be a solid wall. So, and then, nice. Uh, yeah, I, nice. I got together once with a redheaded gal when I was a youngster, and yeah. the next day, Hale-Bopp uh, Comet oh. showed up, and those people killed themselves. Yeah. Um, and Bart and- went on strike. So I'm just... <laughs> I'm sorry, but it happens. You don't sound like you. So, I'm just going to uh, say, I don't... You know, you know it was... It, it's uh, The juice was not worth the squeeze, as okay. it were. Um in terms of the effects on everyone else. All right. So, yeah. Okay. But they couldn't sneak them in because the no, Japanese because, aren't redheaded. You know, yeah, no. Yeah, and, so and it's... Mono, it, monoculture. Exactly. Society. It, it, yeah. yeah, just never never yeah. got anywhere. Um, so, Kobe yes. was attacked eight times between February and August. Okay. The first three attacks were incendiary against mm-hmm. the city itself. Left 650,000 people homeless. Almost seven square miles of the city were completely destroyed. Where did, where did these people go? Did they were there camps that were set up? There there, there were there were camps that were set up. They which you can't know, be better because that's that, that would be no, canvas at yeah, best. No. So well, and then and then you go to a camp that's a couple of miles away, and then there's another firebombing. Right. Yeah. Um, nearly everything in the city was somehow damaged. There, wow. there was there was not an undamaged structure anywhere to be found. Uh, the later raids were, quote, precision, uh, bombing raids against industrial and military targets. Right. Uh, precision only by the standards of the day. They were mm-hmm. high-altitude bombing with iron sights. Right. Uh, even today, precision-guided munitions still have a miss rate in the 10 to 20% range. Yeah, Doha back Farms, then, for instance. Yeah, yeah back, back then, uh, you know, the precision bombing raid meant, you know, fully... Forty percent of the explosives we dropped hit the target. That right. was, you know, um, precision just meant that you were aiming at a target. Yeah, that you was not just a randomly. population. Yeah, yeah, and okay. and so every time this happened, there was more collateral damage sure. going on. And basically, Kobe was flattened. Just yeah, completely. Uh, if you're ever in a mood to cry yourself into a puddle. <laughs> Um, okay. I, I highly recommend You're a watching. A couple years late on that. Yeah. Okay. So. Right, well, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, I highly recommend watching Grave of the Fireflies. Okay. It is an animated film. Okay. Which you know means that a lot of a lot of Westerners who are fans of anime have looked at it and gone, "Oh, hey, this looks pretty cool," because oh, we no. still assume that it's animation for children. Meets, it means a kids' film. Uh, it documents <laughs> it documents oh, the firsthand experiences of uh, the writer um, Akiyuki Nosaka as a preteen boy who survived the bombing. There's another book by Kenji Kurunawa, maybe Barefoot Ken. Yes, yes, yes. It's a three-volume series, yeah, I, and that got turned into an animated feature. Yes, yes, yeah. 
Yes. Um, I'm really not kidding <clears throat> about the crying. Okay. Um, the hardship yeah. and the survivor's guilt right. that comes through in every minute of the film wow. is literally gut-wrenching. Okay. Like, like fetal position on the floor. Wow. Sobbing. It is... One of the most wonderful movies mm-hmm. I never want to watch ever again in my life. I get that. So it it and Saving Private Ryan. Okay. You know, masterful sure. film. Thank you. Yeah. I'm Punch done. that ticket. Yeah. Don't need to do it again. Yeah. So but but we're here to talk about giant robots. Right. Uh, so back to Manhattan we go. I'm sorry. Um we were just in Japan. Yeah. Well, I'm not talking about the city Manhattan. I'm talking about the project. Okay. Cool. Manhattan Project. Sure. Uh, you know the one that gave us a nuclear bomb. Right. Right. Now, uh, Germany started a nuclear weapon program in 1939. Mm-hmm. Two of them, actually. <laughs> uh, but one was canceled at the same time the second one started because of the invasion of Poland. Ah. Okay. Bigger fish to fry. Yeah, well, yeah. And and uh, basically the first project got canceled. The second project was under the control of the Wehrmacht directly. Gotcha. So it was a straight up military project. Um, and the fear of the Nazi effort to build a fission weapon motivated allied efforts that were right. consolidated over the course of the war. Originally there was a British program, an American program. Yeah. And uh, under Manhattan, that consolidation finally happened. And sure. Manhattan started in 1942. Their working prototype was tested on July 16th, 1945 at Trinity, New Mexico. Right. And detonated with a force of 20 kilotons. Which at uh, that point was like the biggest that there had that was, ever that been was the largest It was profound. Explosion. Yeah, it was yeah. the largest explosion by far in right. history. Um, um, so... On July 26th, 10 days later, the Potsdam Declaration called Mm -hmm. for Japan's unconditional surrender. Mm -hmm. The Japanese responded with a policy of silence. Now, I've written about this extensively uh, for uh, a number of research projects that I've done. The policy of silence may well have been... No, I'm sorry. Um, I'm thinking about after the first bomb. Never yeah. mind. Never mind. Yeah. No, the policy after Potsdam, policy of silence. You're absolutely right. Policy of silence. Yep. It was we're not even we're not even we're not going to decline it. We're not we're certainly not accepting it. We're just right. not saying anything. Um, and the lack of response was taken as a no. You're not accepting, so you're right. declining. Right. So remember that estimate of a million casualties. Yes. Nobody liked it. Nope. Truman didn't like it. Nobody in the army staff liked it. Mm-hmm. The Brits didn't like it. They were going nope. to be involved in the invasion. No, like ever, that was ridiculous. That yes. was that was a an inconceivable number. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and so dropping the bomb on Japan became the go-to plan. There was no other secondary option considered. Mm-hmm. And Hiroshima was hit on August sixth, destroying sixty-nine percent of the city's buildings and flattening four point seven square miles mm-hmm. at one fell swoop yeah and that's really the difference because i mean you had and i think it killed about one hundred forty thousand. uh 70 to eighty thousand right away were killed immediately right. and another seventy thousand were wounded radiation poisoning radiation right. burns, all that kind of stuff. so you killed 70 to eighty thousand immediately instantly instant thanos yes snap of a finger now that's that that is not as many as the hundred thousand who died in one no. night in tokyo but 
It's instant. It's instant. So it is one weapon. It's profoundly different. Yes. Even though the body count is lower, you well, it's ap- still it's still it's a number still that we huge. can't conceive of. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's 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 a it's a number that like you can look on it, look, look at it on a table, and you go, yeah, it's a pretty big number. It's, but you don't. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like anytime. It's thirty five of the high school I teach at. Yes. Dead yeah. immediately. Dead yeah. with like, and they yeah. all fall down. Yeah. Like that dead. Yeah. Um, oh, burned up. Not, yeah. e- not even. No, no, no. Not more yeah. dead than that. Right. Like vaporized. Yes. Like there is not even anything left of them if you're yes. close enough to, to ground zero. Yeah. And it was and it was that level of, you know, an incendiary bomb. Mm-hmm. You're gonna burn up. You're gonna die. You're gonna find you're remains. Gonna so you're gonna find remains. No, no. There's nothing. But also an incendiary bomb. You see carpets of bombs falling. Yes. All night long. It's yeah. not. One a single thing falling. Yeah, it's not the hand of God. It's yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's so profoundly different. So yes. and and so the second bomb was mm-hmm. dropped on Nagasaki on August 9th. And that I think is actually we we don't have to get into it yeah. that much in this episode, but um, the reasoning behind mm-hmm. that it's it's a very interesting thing. Part of it was that it took Japan a day to figure out what had been dropped, mm-hmm. and then it took them a day to convene people. And then they were getting arguments for and against surrender. And meanwhile, Groves, Truman basically forgot that he gave Groves a blank check. Yeah. And Groves was like, well, we made it. We should use it because yeah. he's a general and that's what generals yeah. do. And so the... Give him, give him a really big hammer. He's yeah. He's going to drive really big Look nails. Look at these nails. Yeah. So, yeah. But it... it and that yeah. one was even bigger. Well, interestingly... Yeah. Interestingly, it was even bigger, but it, it killed and injured fewer people. The, the death toll was 35 to 40,000 and yeah. injured 60,000 because Fat Man detonated above a valley. Right. And the shockwave was contained. Right. And, and so it didn't, it didn't have the same, the same large casualty figures. Mm-hmm. It didn't destroy the same square mileage. Well, Nagasaki was not as densely populated no. as Hiroshima That's either. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so the era of the super weapon. Yes. I use this phrase talking about Fantastic Four, talking about <laughs> nuclear weapons, because really that's what this was. You yes. know, in, in science fiction earlier, you know, uh, uh, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells had talked about right. you know, these, these concepts of these, you know, fantastical mm-hmm. super weapons. Biblical. Biblical kind stuff, of, you yeah. know, Bhagavad Gita, I am become death, yeah. the destroyer of worlds, which is exactly what Oppenheimer thought Said. when he saw yeah. the Trinity test. Um, so the era of the superweapon had arrived in reality, and now we go back to Kobe. Okay. Not even biblical, though. Because I'm thinking back to, like, when God raised cities and stuff. He sent angels, and they carpet-bombed. Yeah. Like, there were pillars yeah. coming up and shit like yeah. that. It was the, a process. The paradigm, the paradigm was different. Yeah. It was, it was not the same level of devastation As that, that... smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, automata. Okay, humanoid automated okay. figures uh, have been part of human myth forever. Uh huh. Okay, we have the golem. Yes. Uh, Talos from Greek myth. Yes. Uh, even a passage in Hindu myth uh, contains a guardian humanoid automaton with mm-hmm. buzzsaw hands. No kidding. Like, yeah. Wow. It's, it's freaky. If you want to get, like, like, I don't understand where they got this science fiction ethos back mm-hmm. so far in prehistory. Read the Bhagavad Gita because wow. there's stuff in it that's remarkable. So this new separate super weapon, this mm-hmm. this level of devastation had a profound effect mm-hmm. on the popular imagination of the Japanese people. 
They I are. Bet. They have. They have the distinction, and they will point say, it out to you of to being date, the only people right in history to have not one but two nuclear two. weapons used against them. There was a guy who survived Hiroshima, fled to Nagasaki. Uh huh. Yeah. I couldn't imagine <laughs> that can guy. You, can you can you imagine feeling like you were born under a bad sign? Like any just more like more than that, dude. Like do you get to the point where you're like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> are you like, kidding me? Are you kidding? Yeah. You've got to be joking. What like, what you know What kind of Buddhist, resignation by, do you by have? By the way, Buddhist nation, what did I do in a past life? Yeah. Like what who did I screw over this? It, there, was, there were also <laughs> several know? people who survived uh, the Lusitania, one of yeah. whom went on no, who survived Titanic, yeah. one of whom went on to serve on so Lusitania. Yeah. It's just like Dude, like, what? if you survive both of those, you do whatever you, you want. want. You go on every boat. Yeah, you, you, know? you get on every ship from yeah. here forever. Yeah, yeah, because you're unkillable. God, could you imagine how obnoxious he would be if you're, he survived? You're Nero's, you're Nero's too. mom. You know, you're fucking unkillable. <laughs> but, but I love that story. But <laughs> but like, could you imagine being that guy that survived Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then wound and, up like, on the Indianapolis? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, like. Okay, you yeah. know what? You're a Jonah. Yeah. Like yeah. like if, if you were one of the other crew yeah. on any boat he was on, you'd oh, be yeah. like, no, no, oh. no, I'm kicking you the I'm, fuck off. I'm going AWOL. I'm, like, I'm out. I'm out. I'm like, yeah. the rats are running. Yeah. I'm I'm, no, but just like be that guy who survived both. Yeah. And and be like, you know, and like somebody burns the turkey. He's like, eh, who cares? You know, or, or he's always trying to one-up you. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. like oh, just like that was bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you think you've got it rough. Yeah. So, so... This this yeah. this idea of what we would call robots. Oh yeah, have, have been around forever. But this new super weapon, this level of devastation had a profound effect. Like I said, on the popular imagination of the Japanese people, and especially important for our story, on a fifth grader named Mitsuteru Yokoyama. He had been evacuated during the war uh, and returned to find his home city utterly devastated. Kobe. Like I said, completely flattened. Mm -hmm. Hiroshima and Nagasaki had similarly been decimated, but in their case, the devastation was inflicted by a single bomb each, like we talked about. The power of that mm -hmm. and the power of the German V weapons, the V1, V2. The rockets. The rockets. Right. Similarly designed to inflict destruction in a long distance. On a civilian population. On a, on a civilian population. But but for him it was it, it, the, the implications of on a civilian population. He was mm -hmm. a fifth grader. It was kind of lost on him. Sure, sure. But he went on. It inspired him to create the manga the comic mm -hmm. book Tetsujin Twenty Eight Go, translated into English as Iron Man Twenty Eight. Manga started publication in nineteen fifty six. Okay. Tetsujin is a sixty foot tall robot developed as a Japanese super weapon prior to the end of the war. The son of the scientist who invented it controls the robot with a remote. They go on adventures, fighting crime syndicates, pirates, uh, kidnapping and terrorist rings, evil super scientists, submarine pirates. It's it's a three-color comic book right. with a super weapon as a major MacGuffin. Okay? Controlled by a kid who also happens to be a kid detective... Drives a car, carries a gun. I mean, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's it's kid fantasy. Yeah, yeah. It, you know what? That um, the Spider-Man movie that just came out. Yeah. One of the Spider people in his Spider Verse is a Japanese, Japanese schoolgirl school girl who controls a robot. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. It has it has roots going back to yeah. Here. This is where this is where we see this. The anime adaptation of the comic started in 1963, was imported to the United States in 1964 as the animated series Gigantor. Okay. Worthy of note here are mm-hmm. changes to the backstory. The original series is set immediately post-war. Okay. The U.S. version happens in the distant year 2000. <laughs> the original series explicitly says Tetsujin Gigantor was invented as a Japanese superweapon. The translation simply states he was invented as a weapon, but reprogrammed to be a guardian of peace. <laughs> so, setting the American retread aside for a second, consider the psychological implications. Mm-hmm. A superweapon. Yeah. Explicitly described right. as a superweapon is now depicted... Being used for Terry and the Pirates, four-color comic book, comic strip, adventures, mm-hmm. zany hijinks. Uh, I mean, action, zany hijinks, not always comedy, but right. you know what I'm saying. Um, and the comic and anime were both wildly popular. Okay. Like, huge, like, zitgeists, massive. Right. And led directly to the next series in the chronology of the development of this genre, which is Mazinger Z. Okay. Which took the idea of a giant robot okay. and switched it up by having it be piloted by a person. So is the robot its own conscious being or not? No. Okay. No. The, the giant robot becomes a vehicle. Okay. Okay. Um, and Go Nagai, the creator of Mazinger Z... Wanted to do something with a giant robot, but he didn't want to rip off Tetsujin. And he was trying okay. to come up with an idea. And he was like, you know, what, what, how can I, because this is really awesome. I really like this idea. Of how do I distinguish? Like a, you know, 50 foot tall robot. Right. What do I do to make it my own? And he got stuck in traffic one afternoon. Mm. And, can we rewind and, for just a second? Yeah. How tall was that first one? 60 feet. And the second one, you said 50, but were you just throwing out a number? I was just throwing out a figure. It's um, interesting that 60 feet is the thing. Because I was I was reading the physics of superheroes, mm-hmm. and that's the highest height that Ant Man slash Giant Man ever got to. Interesting. And it's because at sixty feet, the weight and the strain, and I don't remember the exact science behind it, but the weight and the strain of the human body would collapse on itself after sixty feet. Okay. I can see that. I just think that's kind of interesting. That's it, that, that is we interesting. we all seem that's to working. land at. At that kind of figure. Right yeah, on there. That is an interesting parallel. Because mm-hmm. the similar themes of power and, right. and you know, uh, uh, dominion and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff are tied in there as well. So, but he got he got stuck. This is one of my favorite stories. Okay. He got stuck in a traffic jam. Uh-huh. And uh, I idly thought how nice it would be to have a way to bypass the cars in front of him. And the idea of a gigantic robot just Stepping. stomping over. Yeah, I saw that in Looney Tunes, yeah. Yeah, so it came into being. So Mazinger mm-hmm. really uh, is the birth of the subgenre okay. of what we call the super robot. Okay. Uh, the robot defies physics regularly, mm-hmm. has rocket propelled fist missiles as one of its main weapons. Okay. Uh, you, may, you, may, you may have seen somewhere Transor Z. As a kid, Mm-mm. that was the American again retread of Mazinger, yeah, uh, and its and its main weapons were its its fists, fists come would fly out. off as, mm-hmm. as rockets, and um, they would uh, fly out and hit whatever they hit, and then fly back and reattach themselves. Oh. 
which, you know, think about the physics of that for a second. There are none. Um, well, you just hit rewind on well, the animation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. It's all, yeah. It's all you know. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, the rules don't matter. Right. Um, and uh, the stories gleefully ignore any kind of practical concerns about power source, uh-huh. ammunition, etc., in favor of what awesome thing can this gigantic tool of devastation do next? Uh, all of it is done in huge bright colors. It's uh-huh. mostly kid friendly. Mm-hmm. Amazing or Z really is all kid friendly. Um, well, and is kid friendly different from culture to culture? Yeah, I, we're talking yeah. about a culture that survived two giant bombings. Yeah, profoundly giant bombings. Yeah, plus a whole bunch of like carpet bombings and incendiary mm. bombings. So the the boundaries for them are very different necessarily yeah. than the boundaries for oh, yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. So this is uh, again kid-friendly depictions of violence uh-huh. with lots of whooshing and banging and you know mm-hmm. Biff Pow, sure, you sure, know, uh, '60s Batman kind of stuff, and very little blood or lethality. Okay. Okay. There's there's all kinds of explosions. There's all kinds of stuff falling down, getting smashed, all that kind of stuff. Spectacle. Yeah. There's all the spectacle and not not a lot of gore. Okay. Not a lot of actual death. I mean, mm-hmm. there's death when it's important to the story. Like, you know, when the pilot's family, you know, family member, mentor figure gets killed as part of his heroic arc, that's a big deal. But otherwise, you know, it doesn't Mm -hmm. happen. Um, After Mazinger, we have more series, Getter Robo, Combatler, what's referred to as the Combatler Romance Trilogy, uh, which was, as it says, a trilogy of series in, in a common universe uh-huh. further codified the aspects of this subgenre so we we see an emphasis on coolness over practicality which i've already mentioned, of course involves hot-headed passionate heroes uh-huh the the the, the not chief a japanese pilot, thing well the thing is it is and it isn't okay um in social situations in the real world mm-hmm. the expectation is that you are going to be you know, you're going to follow the the Confucian ideal of of Lee. Uh-huh. You're going to you're going to be well behaved. You're going to keep everything under control. You're going to be calm and serene. Right. However, if you are involved in a contest of any kind, if there's a conflict, if there's a struggle, if there's a whatever bonsai, bonsai passion. Okay. You know, you've got to be you know totally committed. The the one of one of the central characteristics that that you wind up finding if you look at like all kinds of Mm-hmm. cultural artifacts of, of Japanese culture is there is this idea of whatever you're going to do, man, you fucking commit. Like a hundred percent. That's totally their if geography. If you are going to be, if you are going to be a chef, uh-huh. like you, there are whole manga series devoted to becoming, you know, the protagonist trying to become a chef. Right. And it's, it's, they're all done in the same artistic style, with the same kind of you know glints in the eyes and the and the right. you know, emphasis on dynamic poses as superhero comics. It is you are dedicated to the path of cooking. That's very commit. That's that's the Odyssey. It is. That's be be the best swineherd you can be. Yes. Yes. That's interesting. They're yeah. both island communities. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Because you know. <laughs> there's not a lot of other options. Well, and that's yeah. You know. I mean, that's that's the geography dictating yeah. personality in some ways. Oh yeah, like focused into yeah. these valleys. Yeah, focused into this ten percent of landmass. Into whatever it is you got going yeah. on. Yeah. So, um, so the, the heroes are hot-headed, passionate kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it laughs mockingly in the face of physics and scale, 
And generally, the giant robots are created from some lo- for some lofty goal, like protect Earth from alien invasion, mm-hmm. act as a guardian of peace. You know, these these big, when you really get down to it, they're either tautologies or similarly, mm-hmm. it's like, well, what does that actually mean? Right. Build a giant, this, the giant robot doesn't sound like a pr- practical tool to do this. Why right. Exactly, you know, because it's cool. Shut right, up. Right. You want to blow shit up, you know. And now the draw of this is interesting from a Zitgeist pr- perspective. The generation who had been born just before the war and just during the war mm-hmm. loved these series. Okay. Um, they they have fandoms to this day mm-hmm. that are as passionate as Star Wars fans, Star Trek fans, Doctor Who fans. Sure. I mean, like like religiously dedicated. And they were so beloved, they've spawned countless imitator spinoffs, reboots, uh-huh. uh, sequels, remakes, all of them. Mm-hmm. Shows about super weapons, in these cases, super weapons of awesome power, uh-huh. purposed with lofty romantic goals. Okay. Okay. And and set in this very romantic in the in the sense of high romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, of you know where where all of the themes are are melodramatic. All of the relationships between the characters are, you know, deep. You know, still waters run deep if there are still waters. Right. Everybody is right. There's you know, passion is a driving force in everything, and these are the living witnesses of the terrible, terrible devastation of total war, and the world's first true life super weapon. And so we see these super weapons Mm -hmm. becoming guardians. Oh, this Lord. this power that they had experienced as right. this traumatic, horrible, terrible, again, curl up into a ball and cry yourself right. to death if you watch the depiction of what they went through uh-huh. kind of experiences are now being repurposed in their popular imagination and in their popular media into the thing that's going to protect them, into the thing that's going to save them, into the thing that gives them this outlet for adventure and and romance and excitement and all this stuff. Sounds like America bombed the shit out of them. Yeah. And then occupied them. Yeah. And helped them rebuild industrially. Yeah. Set them up as an economic power. Yeah. And kept them safe from anyone around them. Wow. This is why I love doing this podcast, because <laughs> that was an analogy that had gone completely under my radar. Are you serious? I am. I yeah, thought I that was even, like, I hadn't oh, even wow. thought of it. I hadn't even yeah. thought of it as the, on, on the nation state level. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of it. I, 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 my focus mm-hmm. is on the individual into nation state coping mm-hmm. with trauma okay. level. See, I'm thinking... But what you, but what you point out is, yeah. yeah, America, yes. Well, even on yeah. a person-to-person level, what have these people been fed yeah. about oh, the yeah. invasion? Yeah. These people will eat you. And then they show up, and they give you meat. They and show they up, they give you jobs. They, yeah. they give you a government. Yeah. They give you... They give you a more representative, better, fairer, less sexist government yes. than the then, one you had before and in some ways than their own thank at you. home. Yes. yes. Um, but And then they, they set you up as a trading partner. And they, I mean, they really do, they, they bomb and they the shit invest, out of you. And they invest billions of yes. dollars. Yeah. But also, like, the American GIs were, like, given a code of conduct while you're over there. Yeah. You, you are our face. So... So they went you from propagandizing 
yeah. um, them as they will eat you and your children. You have mm-hmm. to stab them until they stop moving to, nah, man, they're they're cool. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and in the same time period, mm-hmm. now that you bring that up, of course, in the same time period. Um, <clears throat> when did this uh, kid grow up? The first one is in the 50s, in, right? Uh, he, he was alive during the war. Right. He was a fifth grader in 45. So he so heard he the propaganda. Was, oh, yeah. So yeah. by the time America leaves, yeah. he is barely an adult. Yeah, he's a young adult. And then he starts yes. doing this thing. Okay. Yes. So I'm sorry to interrupt. No, yeah. no, that's brilliant. That's why we do this. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and um, so the, the, the bombardment left a deep, deep mark, like we talked about on mm-hmm. the Japanese national character. And um, there, there was also before that... Uh, or, or additionally, um, there was the the changes that were wrought by the general devastation of the war, and before the war, the militarization of their culture that had led to it. Mm-hmm. And after the war, the the new government that was installed and the people who elected that government mm-hmm. became pacifist to the extent that uh, nowadays in Japan, joining the self-defense forces is considered a loser's job. Wow! Like, like there is no prestige whatsoever attached to it. Wow. It is, it is. If you're joining the self-defense forces, you know we the the, the joke has been made that you know uh, do you, do, do, cop pulls a comedian over mm-hmm. uh, Sarah Silverman, I think, and he says to her, "Do you know why I pulled you over?" She says, "Because you got C's in high school." That's the attitude that they have toward the military. Wow. Um, That's quite the shift. And so the New Japan, Mm -hmm. partly because of the propaganda we fed them, uh, was in love with futurism. Like whiz-bang, ray gun, space. If it was futuristic and new, the Japanese have always had a, a, uh, a love of the different. Yes. Always. It's always been a cultural thing. Uh, but xenophilia has mm-hmm. always been a part of their culture. But since World War II, mm-hmm. especially in the couple of decades after that, like they adopted rock and roll. Oh, yeah. And and they adopted, uh, if you look at uh, Bosozuku uh, biker culture. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you see... American the funniest, gang culture yeah. like ramped up to eleven because again, if you're gonna do it, fucking do it. <laughs> um, you know, and and, yeah. and all of these things out of our culture that got transported over there that get exaggerated and 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 mirrored, and they do it, and they're like, no, no, I'm gonna do that more and better. Well, because they don't have the organic aspect to it, they adopt it. Yeah. So when you adopt something, you adopt the most outward signs of it quite often. Yeah. So they've got the zeal of the converted. Yeah. Without the history of the raised in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. And uh, so they were deeply committedly pacifist. Sure. But uh, they also revisited their mass trauma in their new popular myths. Yeah. Godzilla. Yes. Godzilla is the obvious example. Kaiju films are a separate genre, but they're related. <coughs> yeah. Uh, you know, <clears> to the was, point where there's a mecha crea- Godzilla. Yeah. He was either <laughs> awakened or created, depending right. on which version of the story, by nuclear tests in the Pacific. Right. How more on the nose could you be? <laughs> um, but but the power in this case has been taken mm-hmm. in, in the super robot genre. This power has been taken 
and it has it started out being Dionysian and it's been turned into being Apollonian because I love that dichotomy. I love that. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. I could, I totally see. Yeah. Okay, then mm-hmm. decade or two went by, and um, the super robot genre ruled the roost. That was what giant robot fiction was. Okay. Uh, throughout the sixties into the seventies, and then in nineteen seventy nine. All right. There was a new seminal work uh, with called Mobile Suit Gundam, and that was the birth of the real robot genre. The okay. real robot. Real robot. Okay. Gundam is the first example of a giant robot that actually had to worry about things like maintenance, reloading weapons, oh, okay. supply chains, okay. all of those military science fiction real world concerns right all of a sudden is like no no this is a machine let's think about how this machine would have to work and the grit factor is a lot higher in gundam um think of watchmen okay compared to the fantastic four yeah no i I get you Um, do you think some of this has to do with the fact that the 70s were such a shitty time yes worldwide oh yeah yeah Here's the deal. The, yeah. the 70s saw um, the Cold War descend into the you know looming dread that we've talked about repeatedly when we talk right. about it. Um, the the heightened tensions and fear and panic and oh my god you know overblown circumstances right. turned into well no we have mutually assured destruction if anybody pulls the button if anybody hits the button we're all going to die right and that's just the ba- and that's just background noise yeah and insanity you know, will save us yes yes. Uh, and and the Japanese, of course, were hosting U.S. military bases. Yeah. So there was a chance they were going to be targeted. And um, and they had no say over it. And they had no say over it. And yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, they were one of the staging areas that our military used to send guys to Vietnam. Right. And for guys coming back from Vietnam. Right. And and Korea and too. Korea and Korea as well, but Same. really nineteen seventy nine we're looking yeah, at yeah, yeah. Vietnam. Well, we're post Vietnam by that point. But, yeah, but it had been but in, it, baked it, into the it culture. Was, that was, yeah. yeah. And, and so, by this point you'd had thirty years of occupation. Yeah. And so war uh-huh. plays a central role in the real robot genre. Okay. They are military science fiction with, with giant robots. Uh, the robots are literal weapons. Mm-hmm. They're not superheroic constructs, but elaborate fighter jets or tanks. Okay. Okay. Uh, they're the cutting edge of military tech, but that's exactly what they are, military tech. Armored Trooper Votoms is an example of this utilitarian idea taken to an extreme. Uh, in Mobile Suit Gundam, the, the mechs are more utilitarian looking. Right. But they're still recognizably humanoid with close to humanoid proportions. Yeah. They're um, they're jets and, with legs yeah, and, and arms. And Gundam and, and the Gundam itself is this swoopy right. samurai helmeted, you know, special ace custom prototype. Right. Uh, in Armored Trooper Votoms, the mechs are probably they're I wanna say they're about twelve feet tall. They're much smaller. Okay. Uh, and they are ugly. They are intentionally Utilitarian to the to a point of being mugly, right? Because okay, you know, look at a Sherman tank; it ain't pretty, right? Okay, um, and uh, somewhere in the middle of that spectrum is Fang of the Sung Dogram, which I've mentioned before. The mechs in that one are some of my favorite designs. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the early mechs in BattleTech were taken from Fang of the Sung Dogram. 
Okay. And I was initially exposed to them in BattleTech, and then I saw where they came from, and so BattleTech was created in eighty-five. Right. Eighty-four, eighty-five. And Warhammer Forty K was created in eighty-four, eighty-five, roughly about the same time. So they're they're both they're, drawing they're, on the yeah, same aesthetic. Similar, similar. Well, the the there's a lot more Gothic and Eldritch going on in Warhammer Forty K. Um, but, but well, and but Warhammer same, same isn't giant robots dark, either. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's but but the same idea of, of dark, kind of dark, gritty, gritty yeah, and, and by metal Vietnam, affected by yeah. yeah, everything that Sauron wanted to build. Yes, basically, yeah. And Macross, which you would recognize as Robotech, sure, is somewhere in the metal, both both tech wise and in terms of plot. Okay, uh, Macross, we see, um, you know, we see major characters get killed. We see major characters die ugly. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Roy Foker, we we see him. Is he bleeding. the one that gets? Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. He's the gets it in the back. Guy. Gets it in the back. Um, and then other other uh, members of Rick Hunter's squadron, Hikaru Ichijo in the original series, mm-hmm. uh, die ugly and pointless in, in in pointless mistakes or you know essentially in ways that like man, why'd you go out like a punk? Sure. Um, and so these series showed a much grayer worldview with a lot more moral ambiguity. Especially in Votoms, which like cribbed a whole story arc from the Vietnam War. Oh wow! They had serious, meaningful character deaths, and their depictions of violence were not Looney Tunes ish. They, they, you right. know, you'll never see, you know, a real robot two fists is, fighting. Is, isn't, yeah, is, yeah, isn't ever going to fire its fists off. Uh, now, this genre obviously both postdates Vietnam, mm-hmm. in which case super weapons could not have solved the problem. Right. And, and 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 they're and, smaller now, yeah, because tactics. Because are, tactically, yeah, and uh, not only that, but if super weapons had been used in Vietnam, they would have made everything so much worse, right? Because if if we had used nuclear weapons to try to solve our problems in Vietnam, that would have brought the Chinese and the right. Soviets in, and we would have destroyed mutually the world. assured destruction. Yeah. They're still romantic adventure kind of flavoring to these stories, but it's no longer four color comic storytelling. And these stories are a harder brand of very specifically military science fiction. Okay. And now we've kind of come full circle for the purposes of our podcast because this is where right. Battletech comes in. Right. And these stories have now reached the United States. We've brought them over here. And a bunch of game designers look at this and go, this is awesome. I want to take this and turn this into a game. Right. And our own universe where we're going to throw all this into the far sure. future and do all this stuff. That we've talked about in the BattleTech episode, right? And so, and and then, so this this is a genre that was born out of the shared trauma of the Japanese people in the fifties and sixties, then got adopted by a subset of geekdom as mm-hmm. a way for us to cope with our insecurities, both Cold War and economic, because Kurita are the bad guys, and the Japanese are going to eat our lunch economically in the eighties. And into the nineties. So wait, let me let me let me start from the the beginning really quickly. Okay, we drop atomic bombs on Japan. Yes, that leads to this genre mm-hmm. uh, because of the trauma of a profound super weapon. That is my thesis. Right. Uh, that then uh, morphs and changes as uh, the Japanese people come to terms with the fact that the very people who bombed them so profoundly are now helping them back up. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> then it keeps going because of their partnership with that same people. Not a partnership that they chose necessarily, but it is one that they absolutely ultimately benefited from. Yeah. Then they're watching that group 
kind of spill its own tea all over its own crotch when it comes to the military stuff. And it informs that genre to the point where then people start to notice that and they're like, and so it gets exported back to the same people who started this whole thing by dropping a giant bomb on them. Yeah. And it it reminds me in a very funny way of how Henry David Thoreau inspired mm. Gandhi who inspired MLK. Yeah. So it's like this triangulation, mm-hmm. this bouncing back and forth of east to west over yeah. and over again. Yeah. And again, I'm painting with a very broad brush yeah. because it yeah. saves time. And, and this is in a much more shallow vein. Yeah. But, and yeah. and it's very different, you know. Yeah. But it, it's so interesting to me that it's our own fault that we have it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, culturally. So, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So what... That's that's what mm-hmm. I've got. I mean, yeah. like I said, that's my thesis. What what are you, other than what you just said, right. what else have you got to take away from here? Uh, I think I blew my wad on the idea of yeah. like the, them, uh, the, the Japanese coming to grips with the fact that a people who had so profoundly hurt them mm-hmm. was now their partner in rebirth. Yeah. Um, and, and how that, you know, informed that. So how a yeah. super weapon became a guardian. Yeah. Because the people who used the super weapon became guardians. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I really, I think I spent my lunch money on that. But I would, <laughs> which I like a lot better than I blew my watch. Yeah, I, I spend your lunch money. I think um, better in this context. I, I think in the larger context as well of, of the toys and the fact that it was U.S. sea rations, the metal from those were what became the toys that, that they turned were, around and exported back to the U.S. Right, and they were giant the robot toys. Yeah, and and stuff like that. And I just so it's just so interesting to me that that you have that operating on so many different levels culturally. Your point about xenophilia. Yes. Um, I find it fascinating because our country is currently going through a very xenophobic phase, phase. and by currently Intense. I mean since forever. Um, it's always very xenophobic. Interestingly, the Japanese xenophilia—you have an island culture. Mm-hmm. You and and you see this in England as well. By the way, this this um, exoticization almost this fetishization of foreigners. Yeah, but we don't want them breeding with us. No. Whereas oh, no. over here. There's a tremendous amount of xenophobia, and we're as mixed as it gets oh, yeah. in so many ways. I mean, you and I live in Sacramento. It's a very mixed oh, yeah. Very, yeah, hodgepodge yeah. place, which to our strength. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that both are reacting to the quote. I'm going to use finger quotes here for the word threat mm-hmm. of the foreigner mm-hmm. in ways that are opposite of how their culture actually is built. Okay. So I see what you're saying. a very monoculture group yeah. is very xenophilic. Yeah. A very multiculture group is very xenophobic. And yeah. I, I think that's interesting. Well, I, I think um, if if you're talking about like the, the part where we're talking about our xenophobia, mm-hmm. um, I think the issue that you're talking about there is the fact that we we have mm-hmm. we have this culture of diversity that we have. We yes. have the fact that we are inescapably an immigrant nation. Yes. 
And the thing is, the xenophobia that we see in our latent, mm-hmm. the latent xenophobia that we see in our society mm-hmm. is born out of the, quote, majority culture. Right. You know, the, the, the people in power. Right. Um, wanting to get something out of people coming into the country, mm-hmm. but are afraid of the threat posed by those same people. Right. Whereas in actual, you know, rubber meeting the road terms, mm-hmm. we don't really fear the individual people. Right. You get what I mean? Oh, he's it a is, good one. It is, it is, yeah, it is, it is the yeah. rare individual who I've ever met. Yeah. Um, who who actually has a has a genuine xenophobic has a practical racism has, has a practical if you will. racism you know, <laughs> yeah uh, there is there is the latent kind of well you know getting uncomfortable in you know a quote unquote bad neighborhood at night right you know clutching your purse a little closer your purse a little in closer, an elevator that kind of stuff yeah but when people in our culture actually introduce themselves and start talking. As a culture, right. we're really good at like, okay, no, as a person, okay, now I'm going to yeah, talk to cool. you and we're going to yeah. figure it out and you're going to be one of the good ones. Right. <laughs> and and after you've been exposed to enough of them, you can overcome the prejudice by going, well, you know, wait a minute, every one of them I've ever met has actually been a decent bloke. Therefore. Therefore, yeah. all right, I was wrong. You know, but but the, the initial tribalism, sure. clannishness, you know, threat from the outsider is, is something we all have to overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the difference between the assimilation model uh, of the turn of the 20th century mm-hmm. of the melting pot right. and the assimilation, the modern assimilation model of the stained glass window mm. or the mosaic. I like that. The, That's a lot prettier than the salad. Yeah, yeah. or, or, or the, the, the pot of Velveeta is what I always <laughs> pictured, you know. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, I think that's that's an interesting takeaway talking about Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. Well, and also I was just thinking of uh, your previous episode talking about uh, you know you dived in or delved in uh, a bit to how Japanese unions differ from ours. Yeah, Japanese unions exist in cooperation with and in partnership with, um, and our unions exist as a bulwark. To protect in, in, from the predations in, in, of... In direct opposition to... Yeah, yeah. To those who would snuff them out. Yeah. I'm a pretty pro-union guy, so I'm going to spin it that way. Yeah. But, uh, and like you said, we have a history of, no, no, come in. We need to make use of you. We need to exploit you. But don't you dare try to climb to what we've don't got. get up at Whereas in Japan, it's like, oh, man, you got some cool shit over there. Why don't you bring it over and show it to me? Yeah. Uh, what are you doing? No, you don't get to date my daughter. No, 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 no. But, no, no, no. yeah. No, no. So, it just, no, 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 no. yeah. <laughs> stay stay on that side of the yeah. tatami, please. Yeah. yeah. But, that's cool, cool leather jacket you got yeah, there. You know? Dude. So, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was fun. All right. Glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, any books uh, you want to Well, plug within or read? the vein of talking about Japanese culture, I highly sure. recommend the Sano Ichiro Mystery Series, which I've talked to you about before. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It is... Uh, and Agatha Christie style mystery series where the main character is a samurai in Edo, Japan, mm-hmm. uh, says a lot about uh, Japanese culture at that time. Okay. And if you study Japanese culture at that time mm-hmm. 
it gives you a really interesting window into Japanese culture ever since. Nice. So, how about you? Uh, the True Flag by Stephen Kinzer. Um, okay. It's uh, The Truth Flag, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of the American Empire. All right. And it's about, um, essentially, the uh, Spanish-American War. Oh, and right. how it was our first step onto the world stage as a colonizer. And yes. what I like about it is I heard an interview with the author, and he talked about how much the senators had debates about, are we in the, in the House of Reps as well, how are, are, are we going to do this or not? Like, are we going to step in? Like, we just take it for granted. Yeah. But they were like, seriously, like, do we really want that role? Yeah. And they quoted a lot of Rome. Yeah. In in so doing. And I was like, wow, back when people were classically trained. So Yeah. The benefits yeah. of classical education. Well, if you have any questions, if you want to dig deeper with Ed or me on this topic, as well as many others. Or uh, if you've caught one of our mistakes and want to harp at us on it. Yes. We love social media hate. Um, hit us up with um, at Geek History Time, uh, or personally, you can hit me up at Duh Harmony, and you can hit me up at at E H Blaylock. Yes, all of this on Twitter. Uh, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm Ed Blaylock, and until next time, keep rolling twenties. <laughs>